So as you've probably noticed, we're now doing two versions of every Depolarize episode. We tried it out for a month, and the response was almost entirely positive, so we're going to keep it up. There is the uncut version, which is just me and the guests straight up, everything that goes on. And then there is the shorter, more produced version, which should always be under 55 minutes, around 45 to 50. It's easier for sharing with people. It's also easier if you don't have as much interest in a subject or as much time to devote to it. And you can choose based on what you're interested in, which version you'll listen to. Now, this does increase the financial cost of doing the show, as it is more work for my co-producer, Chad. If you'd like to support this show financially, you can do so by becoming a patron through our Patreon campaign. I try and find some bonus content for patrons only when I can, but mostly, patrons can feel good in their insides about supporting something that they think is valuable. Uh, Before switching to this dual episode format, we were just about breaking even, but now it's costing me about 200 bucks out of pocket each month, and I'd love to get the show back up to breaking even if that's possible. So please consider giving. If you want to, you can go to patreon.com slash depolarize. There's also a become a patron button at depolarizepodcast.com. But also know that I believe in this show as well. And so if I have to cover that cost, I will. And I'm so grateful to everybody who has been giving thus far. Um, it really is. It's pretty awesome. Now, though, on to our guest, Dr. David Montgomery. He's a geologist at the University of Washington in Seattle which means I had the pleasure of interviewing him in person, which is rare. He's written a number of books on soil health and erosion, the history of scientific thought, and even the history of world civilizations as analyzed through their soil. Pretty crazy. But we're focusing especially today on his new book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life, which has some really interesting recommendations for farming practices that David thinks work on a bipartisan level. But before we get into those practices and what he learned in crossing that large cultural divide between coastal elite college professors and rural farmers, we talk about climate change and about the erosion, pun intended, of public faith in science. Why can we trust science? How confident are scientists about various claims? Those kind of questions, which I know have come up many times on the Depolarized Podcast discussion group on Facebook. Anyway, now to the interview. And please enjoy the fact that at the beginning of it, I immediately make an ass of myself. All right, David. So I am completely out of my depth, 100%, speaking with a soil scientist. Is that even the right term? I'm a, actually, I'm a geologist. You're a geologist. Yeah. Okay, but you have written a lot about soil health and history of soil and... Right. Yeah, soil's the icing on the geological cake. <laughs> <laughs> like literally and figuratively. Okay, so I just got a promise to everybody that this will relate to political polarization. <laughs> We're going to get there. So I want to tell the story of how I discovered you. I was on vacation with my wife, my brother, and my sister-in-law. My brother-in-law and my sister-in-law. And my brother-in-law, Cam, was reading your book, Dirt. And he was raving about it. Basically how you explained so many large-scale movements of civilizations rising and falling, all of these macro trends being largely explainable through a look at the soil of these nations and the erosion of the soil and what was going on around the time, how they farmed, what types of food and yields their soils could produce, and therefore how many people that could sustain. Um, And what I loved about that idea was just sort of the ability to zoom out, right? Like perhaps our current debates and our current scuffles might be put into perspective 
by this larger view of civilizations rising and falling. I wasn't really sure at the time how to tie this into polarization, but I knew I wanted to talk to you and I, I figure I knew we could figure something out. Having heard me give that explanation, where does your mind go? Well, it's, you know, as a geologist, I'm sort of uh, trained to step back and look at the big picture and then zoom in and look at the details. And it's the going okay. back and forth between scales that intellectually I find quite stimulating. Yeah. And I was actually really quite amazed at the degree to which looking at the state of the land and the way people have used it, the way they've farmed it, really does sort of define the long wavelength periodicity of human history. If you think about who's rising and ascendant, who's basically over overtaxed and vulnerable to a drought or a you know little or a climate shift or a war with the neighbors. That was really quite educational for me as a geologist and a lot of fun. But there's issues there where I think the history can help us by looking at the history and dealing with issues that still resonate today, but through a historical backward-looking lens, can give us space to talk about something that normally people would go to their respective corners and not listen to each other about. Hmm. Okay, yeah, so let's try and apply that to our current moment, um, to a little thought experiment here. So I'd like you to kind of use the, the way that you think about, say, Egypt around the time of Pharaoh or something like that, or, you know, Egypt in 1200 BC, or any other time like that, you know, uh, Germany in 1400s. What large scale stuff do we see about like America 2017? Is the soil as much of a determining factor now as it was then? Is it other things that have supplanted that? Just let us get in your head a little bit. Well, you know, in, in the first thing, in terms of the soil, if you look at what we've done to the soil of North America since European colonization, we're just repeating the examples that I gave from earlier civilizations, mm. including the eastern seaboard of the U.S., where you look at topsoil loss across America. We've lost something like half of our topsoil. Uh, even in some of the most the most richest agricultural soils in the world, like in Iowa, they've lost half their topsoil in the last couple centuries. Now, at a policy level, on an individual year basis, that's not much of a crisis. But you look at it over the scope of a century, and if you project out our current rates of soil loss and soil degradation, we're going to be in deep trouble trying to feed everybody in 100 years. And that's one of those issues that, you know, by zooming out and looking at it, you can kind of put a perspective on and go, you know, we really should be addressing this quite independent of where one lies on the political spectrum. This is a problem that will affect all of our descendants, no matter what their beliefs. And I think that by looking backward through history, we can sort of get a sense for how those long, slow processes actually end up mattering a lot to the fate of nations and civilizations. So I think it can help us put a spotlight on issues that might otherwise not really rise to the status of the crisis du jour. Now, thinking about how it works and the mechanics of it, you know, gets you to thinking about, well, what might you propose to solve it? And that's where the, the rubber really hits the road in terms of what should we do about it in the short or the long term. And that's the part of growing a revolution that I got really excited about because I think there's some unconventional pairings in looking at agriculture today where there's opportunities to sort of unite people around a common vision of rebuilding the health and fertility of, of the soils of America, well, and around the world as well. Yeah, so what we're going to get to, which I'm also excited about, is you believe you've found some practices that farmers can use that should appeal to both liberals and conservatives 
and that are both economically viable and restorative of the soil. Yep. So I'm going to tease that. <laughs> but I feel like before we get there, there's a larger question, um, and I'm almost afraid to go here, but this is where my mind wants to go, and so I want to go into this. Uh, my brother-in-law, Cam, could not make it. I invited him to this interview, as you know, um, just because I figured he'd enjoy it, but he did send me a couple really good questions. And this gets to the heart of what he was asking, and I know so many political conversations with people come back to this. You have a conservative listener or whatever person in the conversation. You mentioned something like a hundred years from now, we're going to have a very hard time feeding our populace. And they respond with something like, well, scientists disagree on things like that. Or maybe they don't say it so clearly. They just, you can see on their face that they fundamentally don't trust science or at least what they perceive to be the consensus of science. And so there's almost a more fundamental question there of why do we trust science? Like why, like how confident are you in that hundred years there's going to be a lot of problems? How confident are you in Iowa has lost 50% of its topsoil? Like walk us through some of these things. How are they defined? Sure. Well, you know, how confident are we that Iowa's lost about half of its topsoil? Quite confident. There's good data on that. Okay. How confident are we that North American soils have lost about half their organic matter in the last couple of centuries? Quite confident. I mean, there's good data on it. Now, how do you, well, just, I mean, what that'll mean a hundred years from now is a whole nother question. Right. Because I think the first thing you should sort of uh, think of when anybody tells you that they know what was going to happen a hundred years from now, they're going to be wrong. Right. Me included. You know, perhaps <laughs> me especially. Yeah. But but the key is is that what you can do is if you know what trends are, you can forecast how continuing the present will play out. And you know, and that works whether you're talking about the soil erosion problem or you're talking about climate change or you're talking about, you know, some, something else. The real question is what should we then do about it and how might we alter the arc of history so that the current trends don't play out? Given the caveat that the one thing we can be certain of is that whatever the trend is today, it's not going to be maintained because people will change things. They'll invent new things. Social behaviors will change. If we look at, for example, just what has happened culturally in the last 10,000 years and that time since those, you know, the Fertile Crescent farmers started to move into a more of an agricultural trajectory. Think about – if you took people from all over the world at that point today and brought them into today and you know, gave them a shower, gave them modern clothes, you know, trimmed their hair, trimmed their beard, whatever, they'd look just like the rest of us. I mean, there, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. There'd be differences in language, of course, but humanity has not changed very much on a biological level Correct. Yeah. in the last 10, 12,000 years. Culturally, look what's happened. The rich right. diversity of cultures all over the world, the behaviors, both brilliant and wonderful and, and horrible, our most malleable feature is our culture. And that's something that we can be sure will change into the future. Right. And and that's where, you know, I, personally I find the degree of cultural polarization today so distressing because I think that what we really should be doing is trying to figure out what are the best aspects of culture that we can foster in moving forward and problem solving. Science is one of them. Right. In the sense that it, science is, is, as a process, it's apolitical. It doesn't tell you the answer of what you need to do for something, uh, for any problem. What it can do is help you define the scope of a problem, 
figure out the sort of the sideboards to the problem. What are the possible consequences of courses of action that one may choose to adopt in response to a problem? And, and the reason that we can have a lot of confidence in it is that it is inherently a process of questioning things. I mean, one of my pet peeves in terms of talking about the climate issue, for example, is that, you know, there's huge uncertainty as to what's going to happen with with, uh, the ongoing change in the climate, depending on the assumptions you build into models and how you approach asking the question. And so the real question there is sort of how much change is going to happen, not what is happening. But the, the most frustrating part to me is the idea or perception that scientists could actually engage in some kind of large-scale deception where, you know, we're doing this just to get grant money or to further things. I mean, what scientists are trained to do is eviscerate each other's arguments. I mean, yeah. we fight death matches over ideas every scientific meeting, and they get really bitter. And so the idea that you could maintain a party line in an utterly dysfunctional community <laughs> is a joke. I mean, it really is. It's, yeah. um, and so the other aspect of science is that those who have delved deeply into it and practice it know that the, the ideas we have today are going to change. So the one constant is change because you're updating information. The goal is to, is to defeat old ideas and give newer, more robust ideas that are harder to defeat. Yeah, in fact, that's the way you become famous as a scientist. Exactly. So yeah. if there was somebody who could completely overturn the opinion of sort of most of the climate science community or, or whether it was about, you know, whether DDT was toxic or whether we needed oxygen, you know, one of these, you know, any kind of thing that there's great consensus scientifically on, if somebody could come in with the data and actually demonstrate that that was wrong, they've made, they they will be in the history books. Right. So, okay, you talked about the easiest way to project future is to assume what's going on now. And I actually, I had to take a class in uh, meteorology Mm. when I was finishing up my degree. It was like a simple elective in a science elective. And that's the first rule of predicting the weather. The first thing you start with is what is it like outside right now? One minute from now, it is 99%. It'll be like that. Four hours from now, you know, you start to lower the percentage and then you bring in, is there a cold front moving in? Is there pressure changing? Whatever. But But the best predictor of tomorrow's weather is today's. Yes. That's the thing you start with. (laughs) Right. Something has to change. right? Right. And so that's reasonable. And so you can measure soil when you say there's good data, for instance, on topsoil, just really briefly, like oh, how? Sure. How do you well, measure that? My favorite one is that if you want to look at the magnitude of soil loss in the Midwest, go to the Pioneer Cemeteries. They stand feet above the surrounding fields. Interesting. And why? Well, they were never plowed. You don't plow up grandpa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there, there's methods like that that you can go out and go, well, that's an integrated measurement. Of, you know, over the last hundred, you know, however many years it was since that cemetery was established. And people have done that. And you can, that can be a check on, you know, how do you play out those numbers? Uh, There's a slide that I use in a a, a lecture that I give on the Dirt Book where someone took a photograph in the early 1960s of this fence around a water cistern in eastern Washington that stands five feet above the surrounding fields. Well, because the farmer didn't plow over that water cistern. And you can see the cliff and you know the date of the cliff. So you can back out the rate, and that gives you a number. You can also look at, you know, like the USGS collects sediment yield data. They measure all the the soil particles, the dirt that's in rivers flowing, and you can integrate that over time to go, okay, well, how much is bleeding off the landscape? And that's the kind of background research I did for the dirt book. 
Okay. And, you know, and I, I actually published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that has all the data in it so that no one would ever have to do that data compilation again. Yeah, yeah. They could just go grab my, my appendix and, and have at it and update it or change it or challenge right. it, whatever they were trying to do with it. That reminds me of actually this trip that I was on with Cam. We, we went to Iceland. And oh, so he was yeah. reading your book. He works in surface water management, the city of Shoreline, and has a geography degree. He was pointing out in Iceland, you can see it sometimes, but there used to be topsoil in Iceland. Iceland yeah. used to produce crops. It no longer does. It can only produce hay and like a, in a couple places, like one other crop. And it's just sheep and horses. They it, Literally, the soil will no longer produce it. And he showed me pictures and then pointed out to me, you see these like, it's like a run up of this different kind of soil and then a little bit of topsoil and greenery on the top. Held together by grass. Yeah, held together by grass. <laughs> yep. And you're looking right at it and you oh, go, yeah. oh, there used to be, like sheep just basically ate this thing up. Yeah, and, and the gra- the soil there is formed from uh, you know the fallout from a volcanic eruption. Right. So it's, it's wind delivered. And so if you take the grass and the roots that were holding it together away and you still have those, those high North Atlantic winds, it can be wind removed. Right. And I, I went to Iceland a few years ago to film a, a documentary for Icelandic TV on soil erosion. Nice. And I wanted to see it because I had researched it but not visited. It's amazing. When you actually sort of stand in the middle of this area where you can find the scraps of soil in the surrounding terrain and you can know that you can connect them in your mind's eye. And there's nothing but sort of a bare rocky plain in between. And you go, wow, yeah, it, we did this. Yeah, to give someone an idea, it's kind of like the mesas of Arizona or New Mexico with the yep. big, with those, um, what are those things called? They're those, called rofabards. Okay. Well, in Iceland, yeah. they're called rofabards. Oh, okay. and, and in Arizona, they're mesas. Yeah, um, so those mesas come up from sort of the desert floor. Yep. That's on a much smaller scale, but these things are like more like 10 or 15 feet instead of a thousand feet. Yeah, it made out of soil instead of rock. Yeah, but, but, but it look, looks like that, and yeah. you can just clearly see the difference. Yep. So, okay, that's fine. I don't think anybody is going to really fight you too hard on topsoil erosion. But another method that you use, for instance, in dirt, is radiocarbon dating various aspects oh, of yeah. the soil to get a picture of 13,000 years ago, to yeah. get a picture of 8,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago. How confident are you in, for instance, those methods? Um, very. And, and the reasons they've been tested extensively. There's a guy down the hall here. I could show you the table that we made out of one of the old growth redwood wedges that um, he worked on. Yeah. There's a guy named Minza Stiver who ran the uh, carbon dating lab here at the University of Washington for many years. And he was very involved in the calibration of the radiocarbon curves. And the way carbon dating works is, you know, there, there's a certain rate of decay of carbon isotopes that change the isotopic ratio that yeah. starts to go living matter maintains the same ratio as the atmosphere because you're basically integrating stuff all the time and you're gaining carbon and losing carbon as cells are, are grown and die. But once you die or once a tree dies or once a frog dies, those ratios start to change and they decay at a known rate. And how can we be confident that we know that rate? Well, people, scientists thought to ask that question. And so yeah. What would, how would you test that? Well, you'd go to places where you could sample things that were organic matter, carbon, like chunks of wood, where you knew the age. So what would you do? You'd go back to, say, like uh, Egyptian temples, which have an inscription of when it was made, or Roman temples, mm. and sample stuff. You know, a piece of the foundation on a place that you know from historical records when it was built. And you would radiocarbon date that. So you actually you date stuff you already know the date of. 
and then you yeah. first, and then you see whether or not you get the right date. And there's a paper published, uh, you know, the first test of radiocarbon dating was a paper like that published, I think, in the 1940s. And that's exactly what they did. You know, some funeral barge from ancient Egypt, another temple from, like, Iraq, I think it was, and then much younger stuff. And it confirmed that, yep, that's the decay constant that the physicists have worked out by measuring how things decay today. You can apply that decay constant into the past because you get the right date when you predict it using that. The other methods that people used was to take like really old trees, like uh, when old growth redwoods would fall over or get cut down in California, for example. Minza would go and take a, a circular slab out of it, and then he'd radiocarbon date each ring. Each ring, wow. And so, you know, you know that the core of the, you know, because the way a tree works is that the, the center of the tree is dead and only the outer part's living. That's why if you ring bark a tree, you kill it because that's the living part. Okay. But what that also means is if you radiocarbon, you know, each ring or, you know, every tenth ring, however many you have the budget to do. Yeah, right. Um, you know the age of each ring because every year it puts one on. And what Minza did is he went around the world collecting wood samples and made overlapping chronologies where you could, by looking at the variation of tree ring width, you could match up droughts. And then you you basically match them like a barcode. He extended it back more than 10, 20,000 years. Wow, and it works all the way back. There's there's drift to it because the radiocarbon concentration in the atmosphere hasn't been constant. It's a cha- affected by by solar activity, but it doesn't change much. He documented that it changes a few percent, and that gives you a little little more error the farther back you go. And once you get to a carbon day, a age of about forty or fifty thousand years, there's so little left that it's the analytical error that drives the age. And so nobody believes carbon dates of more than 50,000 years because the technique basically runs out of stuff to measure. And there's also background radiation. So like if you go out and you can get a a young carbon date on coal or one that's like 50 or 100,000 years on a sample that's actually millions of years old because if there's radiogenic sources either from deep within the earth or if you had other radiogenic sources that can actually create new radiocarbon you'll get this back, this low-level background that basically is no different than nothing. So, you know, if it's more than forty or 50,000 years, it's just like, you know, don't believe the date. It's because the technique doesn't apply. But for the zone in which it applies, it's been tested rigorously. Yeah. There's dozens, literally, of academic peer-reviewed papers on calibrating with the kind of measurements that I was just talking about, where you know the age, and so you then measure it, and that's how they generate the calibration curve. Okay, so all well and good, we can feel confident in our trust of science, and yet we know that problems remain. There's got to be a lot of space on a political continuum between someone who, let's say, posts on Facebook about every climate change book that comes out or article, goes to every rally, supports every liberal policy position put forward on global warming, between that person and someone who says climate change is a hoax perpetrated by liberal elite scientists for their own gain or perpetrated by the Chinese, there's surely a middle ground, which would claim something like, okay, climate change is real, human beings are its cause, and let's have rigorous conversations about different policies that might solve that problem. Sometimes it feels like this is an impossible dream in today's heated political climate. Again, pun intended. But I wanted to ask David if he had any ideas on how to move such a conversation forward. What I think would be a really refreshing discussion to have culturally is what are the areas of you know, potential adaptation or climate mitigation that are worth doing 
quite independent of the climate issue. This is a pretty good transition into your book. I see what you're doing here. You see right through me. I see. All right. So let's talk about that. So that's what the book is about. You have found these methods that you think do bear on climate change, but they also bear on food production and soil health. And farm profitability. And also the big kicker, farm profitability. Yep, exactly. Okay. So like, what are the methods in layman's terms? And then how do they accomplish all of those things at once? Basically... It's a suite of farming practices, and I'm not claiming credit for discovering it. I went to interview farmers around the world who are already doing it because right. they know about it, and they've tried it and field-tested it and used it. Right. So I went on what I like to call sort of a global listening tour of That's awesome. looking at, you know, going and saying, I'm a geologist, I'm not going to tell you how to farm, but I'm really interested in people who have restored fertility to their soil, and I've heard through the grapevine that your farm has done that. Can you show me your farm? Let's dig a hole in your farm and dig a hole in the neighbor's fields and let's compare your soils and tell awesome. me about your yields and how did you do it? What are your practices? And what I found is that there's a fairly consistent set of principles that the, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization labels conservation agriculture that um, is really sort of different than organic or conventional agriculture. It's sort of a whole different beast because it looks at prioritizing soil health, the, the health and fertility of the soil. And those practices are really, the, the principles behind those practices are pretty simple. It's, it's three things. It's minimizing disturbance of the soil. So don't plow it, which is the follow-up from my dirt book, because the plow was what had caused so much erosion throughout civilization's history. So minimize disturbance of the soil. Uh, plant cover crops, including legumes that fix nitrogen from the atmosphere to basically act as a natural fertilizer. Um, and then diversify rotations so that you have three, four, or more crops grow in the same field either at the same time or at different times sequentially. But don't just keep growing corn or keep growing corn and soybeans, corn and soybeans. Diversify. And those three elements all together whether they're done on a small subsistence farm in Africa using hand tools or whether they're done on a large um, commodity crop operation in Ohio or the Dakotas, resulted in building soil health and fertility. And what was the common element? Those three practices cultivate life in the soil, beneficial soil life. And that soil life improves the structure of the soil. It adds organic matter, a.k.a. carbon, to the soil. <laughs> and it also unlocks nutrients from the mineral particles because the fungi that are, are supported by the, uh, increasing organic matter so they can decay it and by not plowing so you're not chopping them up, those fungi will actually prospect and mine things like phosphorus, calcium, iron, magnesium out of the soil and they trade it to the plants for sugar that the plants push out of their roots, whether it's a crop or out in a grassland or a forest. Most plants, it turns out, do this and they do it to feed the microbes in the soil and the microbes help give the micronutrients that the plants need to be healthy. So you get healthier crops and healthier soil. Yep. Now this is that holds, un that holds water better. So it's more drought resilient. Okay. And because of those things, you can spend less as a farmer on pesticides, herbicides, fertilizer, and less diesel because you're not plowing it. So now this is like unrelated to organic or non-organic. These could be applied in either situation. Yep. So I've, I've visited okay. farms that were both organic farms and uh, conventional farms uh, to ask that very question because it's, it's really a different philosophy of farming that can be applied, whether organic or conventional, in the sense of, of using some herbicide or using some, some fertilizer. And I was um, very impressed with the results on building soil fertility in both cases. 
And what I found is that after you know five or ten years of using this full suite of practices, some of the farmers that had adopted it had gotten their soil back into such good shape that they derive very little benefit from fertilizer and from using herbicides. They had other practices that had taken the place of those, and they were quite happy saving all the money that they used to be spending on these inputs. And I came to label them or, as organic-ish farmers because organic-ish, they yeah. were not really organic. And, and some of them were very culturally opposed to being organic farmers huh. and, and they would not have appreciated it if I'd called them an organic farmer. Yeah. They, they got a good chuckle out of being called organic-ish, though. Okay. And they actually kind of, you know, a few of them like embraced the label because they were like, yeah, I don't use much in the way of chemicals anymore, but not because I can't or don't want to. It's I don't want to spend the money on it. Right. I don't need it. So... You mentioned on the phone when we spoke uh, last week or two weeks ago that some of these farmers, I think you said in North Dakota, are doing free-range beef, free-range cattle, and they're actually they're increasing their profits solely through demand because they actually are producing beef less expensively than some conventional beef uh, producers to make like free-range grass-fed beef. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they're also growing crops at lower cost. But they're getting a premium on it because... Because well, I will go and pay the premium. Well, and right? after seeing what they've done to their soil and sort of understanding the linkages between you know, you know how cattle graze and the nutritional value of the meat, I'd rather eat what they're growing as well. Yeah, but it's only more expensive because we're willing to pay for it. They're actually just doubling their profit, basically. I don't know if it's quite doubling, but they're doing better. They're 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 doubling up, I guess, is what I mean to say. They yeah, so they're, they're cutting their price, they're cutting, they're cutting their expenses, their and they're and they're able to get a premium for their product. Yeah, wow. So you're going around, you're talking to these farmers. Now we're going to get into a little bit of uh, some depolarization. <laughs> so we can see how these should be appealing to both sides of the aisle, right? Because you've got. The liberals going, hey, great, we've got more grass-fed beef. We've got, um, I think most people who care about climate or soil or farming stuff understand the value of rotation of crops and diversity of crops in the soil. And we've also got, we're using less chemicals. And that's better for the environment. It's better for the soil. And then you've got the conservatives, or even better, the farmers themselves, who tend to be politically conservative for probably a bunch of reasons that we somewhat understand and somewhat don't understand. And... They're making more money. Yeah. They care about the health of their soil. It's their livelihood. Yep. But and you're going out here and you're talking to these guys. Um, I'm assuming many of them are men. I'm sure some of them are women. Most, not all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how do these conversations go? Like you're coming from Seattle. You're a. You're like a coastal elite. Now you do have a bit of a. You have a bit of a hippie look. You've got the long graying hair. I see a uh, Grateful Dead. Uh, seven inch 45 record on the wall. Yep. How do these conversations go? Well, you know, the very first time I went out to speak to a farming community in Kansas, I was, I was worried about that very effect. I write about that in growing a revolution, you know, cause here I am, um, who I am coming out to talk about the way that farming practices had degraded the land and society after society and set up the fall of civilization. Yeah. yeah. Right. Let it's, me tell you as a coastal elite, how <laughs> farmers ruined the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So I'm wondering, okay, do they run me out of town before lunch or after lunch? And, you know, do mm-hmm. I still have my hair on the way out? Um, yeah. But I was quite surprised that, that literally the very first time I did this, a, an older gentleman stood up at the back to, when question time came. And he had put had his hands in his pockets and he sort of looks at me and kind of, you know, 
I wasn't really sure you were going to have anything worth listening to saying when you started speaking. But the more you talk, the more sense you made. I've seen what you're talking about on my farm. And I think so has everyone else here. Um, but wow. it happens slowly. And, and if our grandchildren are going to be able to actually work our farm, we've got to fix our soil. And I was just like, bravo. <laughs> um, you know, wow, this, yeah. This is great. So I think you know one of the ways to, I think, sort of get around our, our traditional stereotyping of one another is to find an area of common interest. And I think you know, caring about the health and fertility of the land, it's, it, that's something that farmers really, for the most part, deeply care about. Yeah. And they have insights into it. I mean, they work the land for a living. They've thought about it. They've, they've seen things. Now, one of the reasons that I, I think I've been able to go into um, you know, a very constructive dialogue with the farming community is that I'm not a farmer. I'm a geologist, and I make no pretenses of telling anybody how to farm. Yeah. I'm much more uh, about thinking about, uh, well, here's my concern about the long run. And where we're, the long-term trajectory we're on is not sustainable. So something is going to change one way or the other in this next century, whether it's a shortage of farmland globally triggering food shortages and dealing and adversely affecting food security, or whether it's us getting clever about how we farm and restoring the land so we can actually feed everybody. And that's a level at which um, you know, most American farmers, I think, are very comfortable thinking. They just don't have much practice thinking out 100 years because they're not geologists. They're thinking about this year's crop. And so finding that common ground in terms of the thing that we both care about and acknowledging that we're looking at from a different perspective is important. But also I think that the, the sort of not telling people what to do is a big part of it and listening to you know, what are their actual concerns. And every farmer that I talk to in the interviews that went into Growing a Revolution, they were all very concerned about lowering the cost of the inputs that they use. Um, because what have we done in North America to farmers as a community since the Second World War? They got really good at growing a couple crops, typically on a farm. They specialized. And so, and they developed the commodity, you know, the commodity crop markets developed to essentially take that material and turn it into processed food products. Um, and, but without getting into what that did to public health, um, what yeah. did it do to farm health? Well, what happens when you become very good at supplying a product? The price of it goes down. Right. So they got really good at growing um, large amounts of a few key crops. And so the price of wheat, the price of corn, I mean, they're in the tank. They, they, they're, they're low. What happened to all the inputs that they rely on as modern farmers, uh, as conventional farmers in the 20th century to produce those high yields? The price of all those things went up. Who's caught in the middle? It's the farmers. Interesting. Yeah. So they were all really interested in ideas that they could use to boost the health and fertility of their land, but reduce their input costs. Because if they can keep their yields up and lower their costs, they're more profitable. It strikes me that you could apply that same reasoning of finding out what the other side wants to protect, genuinely attempting to join them in that, in a whole host of other topics, like, let's say, kneeling for the national anthem. I brought this idea up to David. If you're on the liberal side, what is it that the conservative wants to protect? And do you want to protect it too? And is it possible to find a way of thinking and speaking about that going, you know, I agree with you that this is kind of a shocking thing and that there's something beautiful about America that should not be disrespected, etc. Here's David's response. If you can find that common perspective, 
and stand back from it. And I think it is room for a for learning things, and b for sort of changing the argument, changing the discussion. So when I wrote my dirt book ten years ago, when I focused on the end of the book, I was basically arguing, well, we've got to get organic agriculture and no-till agriculture to work together to make an organic no-till. And what I learned writing Growing a Revolution is that, well, maybe it's not so important that all conventional farmers go organic to conserve the fertility of the soil. There's other ways to do it that would be this organic-ish farming, um, that if we could convert conventional farming to that, most of what I was really hoping to see in terms of the, the environmental benefit and the soil fertility benefit of going organic, well, we'd actually harvest those benefits without going all the way there. It's basically a form of policy compromise. It really is, it maps kind of kind of well onto the way that policymakers from either party find a compromise that that attempts to fit the biggest goals of each yeah. side without the smaller goals. It's not ideological purity, but right. it's like getting a lot done. So in the case of farming, what's the main objective? And if you take the two main objectives of restoring profitability to family farms and reducing their environmental impact, what you end up with are the kind of practices that I talk about in Growing a Revolution because that you know, helps majorly, dare I say bigly, with both of those. <laughs> Not to spend too much time on it, but there's obviously a reason why these things aren't happening. Um, and probably some of it is that people don't know about them and your work will work toward that. But who loses here? It sure sounds so far like everybody gains. Well, yeah, the obvious losers will be whoever is a manufacturing and selling most of the chemical inputs that are used in modern farming. Right. And you know, you could look at who sits on the on advisory panels at all levels of government, who um, who rotates in and out of the USDA, and you know, and there's obvious linkages there. But th- I think that there's the reason for optimism lies with farmers themselves thinking that wow, these this new suite of practices will be good for their good for their short term bottom line, but also good for their long term investment in their land and their their hopes on passing that on to future generations. So I see a lot of movement bottom up in support of this. I would hope that there will come a point at which some top down support in terms of policy support would follow. But I think you ha- there has to be a, a fairly substantial on the ground, if you will, interest in seeing very different policies enacted that support this type of regenerative agriculture before we'll see serious, you know, very high level support for it. Because yeah. the ugly truth is that the, you know you look at a policy level on a national level, and there's not a lot of policy engagement outside of the farm states on questions about the state of the soil or even about farming practices. Yeah, and, and and what arguments there are, it's like about organic versus conventional, and and or you know about glyphosate, or you know there's there's big important issues that get argued about, but they're not focusing on well where the common ground should be in terms of how could we rebuild soil fertility in ways that would rebuild the rural profitability of small farms across red state America, while at the same time providing you know progress towards some of the environmental goals that most of the people in sort of big blue cities would embrace and would like to see in their food production system. So you mentioned on the phone that you talked with a lot of these farmers, and some of them specifically did not believe in climate change, but were still open to your you know, your questions and oh, yeah. sort of interacting with you on, on your theories. And I see uh, here in your office, 
The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, which is a book that uh, we talk about a lot on this show. People are probably tired about hearing about it. I just want to mention that, and in case you want to bring it into this answer of sort of how to speak to people so they don't believe in climate change, they must distrust science to some degree if they disbelieve in climate change, or at least they don't believe that people who are presenting the science are truthful or, or something like that. What's the difference? Why could we learn something from how they do engage with you on the stuff that you come to talk about? Well, one of the one of the sort of common elements there is that if you look at what are the farming practices you would do to restore fertility to your soil, and what are the and compare them to what are the farming practices you would do to put carbon in the soil and take it out of the atmosphere? Yeah. They are the same. Hmm. So basically, you have the same sort of practice implication. Whether you're talking about, well, how do we restore fertility to the land or how do we mitigate climate change using agriculture? And yeah, I ran into a very wide spectrum of ideas and ideologies around the climate issue in agriculture. And some of the people I talked to were like really proud of how much carbon they put in the ground because of the climate mitigating thing. So, I mean, you know, the sort of the blanket assumption that farmers would think a certain way is not a good assumption. There's yeah. a wide diversity of thought. Yeah. But on the other hand, some some of the people I talked to were just like, you know, I I don't really believe in this climate change stuff, although it sure has been dry the last four years. But they were embracing these same practices because it helped put more water in their ground and, and, and built climate resilience for their crops. And they were finding that during the drought years, whatever was causing them, they found that their yields were better than their neighbors who were using conventional practices. Yeah. So it kind of worked for them, but their motivation was different. And I, you know, in terms of interviewing them and talking with people, I just sort of didn't really, if they were not interested in talking about the climate motivation for it, I didn't pursue it with them. Yeah. I talked about, you know, what are you trying to do and how are you doing it? That's interesting. That There's something there. I, you kind of have a magic bullet here that may not be able to be replicated in other arenas like besides agriculture where the thing that helps climate change is also profitable i mean if you want right. to talk about well actually i'm not sure of that because well, if you okay, look then let's go yeah if you look at basically um like solar energy wind energy things like that the so-called alternative energy sources yeah. it's starting to get to the point where those are profitable enough that they're displacing coal hmm. you right. know? and so it's like no matter how much any politician will promise to bring coal jobs back yeah, they won't. It's probably not going to happen. It's not because of a so-called war on coal. It's because natural gas and solar and um, and wind power are getting to the point where they're economically more competitive. Yeah. Um, and that's without actually, I think, in my view, adequately accounting for the environmental costs of coal, whether in the climate thing or, or the destruction of, of rivers in Appalachia. So it, it's an if you look at economics and and uh, economic systems. Uh, through an ecological lens and not not an environmentalist lens, but think of them as as organisms that live in an environment or that respond to things, or as, as ecosystems, you know, composed of many businesses that are more like the individual organisms that are interacting and competing, eating one another, killing one another, um, partnering with one another. The whole interacting sphere of life. The lesson you get from studying ecological systems as systems of organisms is that turnover is the constant. Change is the constant. And if you want to basically maintain a high level of biomass in an environment, it's going to be changing forms over time. 
And you could look at economies the same way. And that's the sort of goes back to the, you know, the buggy whips versus uh, Henry Ford kind of argument. Any kind of big economic transition has winners and losers. And however you look at this next century, we're going to go through another major economic transition. And I mean, we've had on a regular basis for the last few centuries. Why not this one, especially with the energy, you know, the problem that we're over the hump of peak oil and that we've got the climate issues to, to wrestle with, let alone the water issues or the soil issue. So change is coming. That's the one thing we can be certain of. And, you know, a lot of the questions in terms of what's good for the environment and what's sort of good for the economy over the long run. You know, if we reframed it in terms of, of thinking about growing new industries, that, that some of the existing big ones are going to sunset. Things like coal and eventually oil. Yeah. They're going to sunset. They're not in the ascendancy. They're in the sort of the late stage senescence, you might say, in terms Beautiful of... Beautiful word. That. Yeah. So what are the ones we ought to be watering so that they have the good jobs tomorrow and investing in? And I sort of view this regenerative farming as one of those examples that we should, as yeah. a society, be supporting. And it may be a good leading edge example of something that could be profitable, you know, today or next year, you know, very quickly. But there's other industries I think we take that same idea to of how do we basically foster change that's going to lead to growth and more profitability. And that's not always going to be by defending industries or technologies that have kind of run through the court, the course of their natural lifespan. Because of David's background and expertise in soil, farming, and geology, I tweaked my final question for him just a little bit. I asked him, what do politically liberal people misunderstand about the farming community who are not always, but usually, culturally and politically conservative. One thing that I think liberals have tended to undervalue and underestimate is the ingenuity and compassion of farmers. Interesting. They care about the land. They want to do the right thing. I mean, I can't tell you how many of the people I talked to that were so proud of the idea that they were helping to feed the world. Hmm. You know, whether or not their stuff was going to, um, you know, feed cattle or, or cars or people. You know, they really have a deep sense of what they're doing. That's beautiful. And their ingenuity in terms of, if you take these sort of new principles of minimal disturbance, cover cropping, and a diverse rotation, and you tried to apply them globally, if you just had one set of practices that you did globally, like, we, like modern farming has tended to uh, encourage farmers to do, it's not going to work very well. We need to empower farmers to think creatively about how to apply them on their own land. And I don't think that we that you know sort of the broad sphere of liberal thought has tended to give them enough credit for th for how ingenious they can be in terms of adapting a set of principles to their land. So in my view, what you know sort of the, the people thinking about agriculture at a broad level could offer to farmers is a different way to view it, a different perspective, a different lens on the problem, a different philosophy. With the and what I'd love to see would be top-down policies empowering farmers to get creative about how they implement those practices. Yeah, that just makes me want to add one little thing, which is that, that I always forget, which is that agriculture is the basis for human civilization. Yeah. The only reason <laughs> that I have enough leisure time to read books, do a podcast, compose music that's used in advertisements that sell products for people to use in their leisure time, it all starts with really smart farmers figuring out how to increase crop yields. 
And if you can increase crop yields, you can have specialists who don't have to farm. And the people who farm can pay them in food for the things that they make. Early specialists are like tattoo artists and basket weavers and clothes makers, right? But all the it's really it starts with food. I mean, if we don't have food, if you're spending all your time growing your food, yeah, you're not doing whatever else it is that you might do. Right. And so, yeah, we all need to bear that in mind. But- we should be like bowing at the feet of farmers and thanking them in a certain sense. Well, for basic sustenance, absolutely. Yeah. But what that also highlights is that everybody has a stake in how our food is raised, yeah, and how it's done. And so there's there's a bit of a social contract there that goes that cuts both ways yeah. in terms of um, you know farming communities being able to feed the rest of us who are not farmers, but the going back the other way is that the you know food consumers are increasingly having a say or would like to have a say in how their food is actually grown, and that's a very interesting and intriguing social conversation for which there are no right or wrong answers. There's yeah. just lots of opinions about right. And then here's the other half of that question. What do politically conservative people misunderstand about the farming community, those that are not farmers themselves, or the environment, or the efforts? Well, let's take these one at a time. What do politically conservative people misunderstand about mostly politically conservative farming community? You know, we've structured our agricultural subsidies in ways that don't really make a whole lot of sense. And I heard that from a lot of farmers who were basically, look, I don't want government handouts. They're very yeah. independent people. What they want is a system that they can thrive in. They don't want a system in which that they're dependent on their agri- on their subsidies. Now, very few of them would turn down a subsidy. And, you know, if I could get a subsidy for writing books, I'd take it, right? Right, yeah. But If only this were Canada. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that there's misperceptions there. I mean, and I think the big thing that, that the stereotypical right-wing view of scientists gets wrong is that there's like we were talking about earlier? There's that there's somehow some active conspiracy to you know sort of either inflate our grant dollars as a community or to push viewpoints that don't make actual sense because we're trying to do that. I mean, yeah. very, nobody goes into science to get rich or because it pays so well or because they think they can get big grants. I mean, they go into science because they're curious about the way the world works, and the ones that can tolerate arguing about it tend to be successful and stay in it. Yeah. What do politically and culturally liberal people get wrong about the work that you and your colleagues are engaged in? Well, I think I've encountered particularly among people in like environmental NGOs mm-hmm. are thinking that, you know, some of them will think that scientists are out there to demonstrate the kind of things that they're concerned about. And I, my own view is that, you know, more to that often than not, the science does fall their way. <laughs> right. But it doesn't always. And I don't know any scientists who are out there really trying to push a particular viewpoint. You know, your own political views frame the questions you think to ask as a scientist. But they don't tend to – there's very few people in academic science that I could point to that I think actually have – you know, a bias in terms of how they interpret or look at things, look at the data. Everybody's got a bias in terms of what questions you choose to ask. But good science sort of forces that that gets removed through the peer review process, basically. Yeah. And, you know, and there's the occasional crappy paper that that does get published in a high profile place. But for the most part, the really sort of bad studies tend, people kind of know about them. They tend to get, you know, they tend to lose cachet over time as other people demonstrate that they were wrong. That's interesting because that goes back to one of the very first things you said today, which is that science is apolitical. And 
you know, I, at the time I went, oh, of course, of course. But actually, I, I realized that I, I do sometimes tend to think, oh, science is on the side of my side, the left. Right. But it's not true. Right. I mean, it may be that, you know, more often than not, science will back up positions on the left. Yeah, especially environmental positions. Especially right? environmental positions, but it's not inherently so. Right. And it, especially if you want to get away from the physical sciences, go into the social sciences, you know, you want to start talking about how do we reduce crime or how much does it matter that people in poor communities are incentivized toward personal responsibility? The science might sometimes point in the exact opposite direction you'd want it to as a liberal. Right. And you have to be, you have to come to science with an open mind. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's clearly in my view, the best way to do it and sort of follow where the data and interpretations go. But you, you can never completely get away from the idea that while science itself may be apolitical, no single human being is apolitical, including scientists, nor should yep. we be apolitical. Right. And, that's where you get into questions of, well, you know, to what degree should scientists be actually advocating for particular policy positions? And, you know, I've not been afraid to do that. But when I do that, I have my hat as an a intelligent, well-informed citizen on, you know, who knows something about science. And where I like to th how I like to think about that is, like, why should we take the people who know the most about a subject, who, who study it, and discount their opinion about what we should do about it? Yeah, yeah. You, know, you wouldn't make the same argument in medicine. You wouldn't make the same argument in, in politics, even. Why do some people insist on making that argument for science? You can find David's work and keep in touch with him at dig2grow.com. That's the number two. He's also on Twitter at dig2grow and facebook.com slash dig2growbooks. Depolarize is co-produced by Chad Michael Snavely and myself. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Koch, K-O-C-H. You can join the Depolarize podcast discussion group on Facebook and keep the conversation going. And as I mentioned in the intro, if you'd like to support us financially, you can go to depolarizepodcast.com and click become a patron. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.